here today, uh, teach, maybe even preach just a little bit, but uh, this last uh, last several weeks, we on Sunday morning have been been talking about the subject of consecration, and in consecration, we finished this out this, this past week uh, with the challenge that I had put forth to the church to take a week to consecrate ourselves, and that we would uh, that we would take set aside something that takes up our time, set aside something that uh, would uh, in our spare time not be focused on on God, and, and instead replace that with a very intentional focus that God could speak into our lives. And I hope that that you have done that this week. Uh, myself, I know I felt uh, it in a very beneficial manner to do that, and I would hope that this would not be something that would just be limited to this week, but that we would make a practice of consecration, that we would make a practice of having times where we are very intentional about reaching out and, and having God uh, be, be being intentional about allowing His voice to be very clear in our lives. And so today, as, as I was, or this week, as I was uh, just praying in, in his word, uh, I uh, was prompted into this, uh, this subject matter that we're going to uh, teach on here today, and that is the subject matter of holiness. And uh, that is uh, what I uh, want to teach on here this morning, and I don't know that I'm going to get through even all my notes that I have for today. We'll see. Uh, we'll uh, probably push this also into next week, but uh, I I believe I, that God was was speaking some things into my my heart, and just kind of speaking some things that maybe today and uh, you'll you might even hear this from a little different perspective here today. But I want to begin this morning, and this is probably is not where you would typically begin on a teaching of holiness. But I want to begin in the book of Esther. If you've ever studied. This book, then you know that it is a very unique book of the Bible. First of all, it's a story that takes place outside of the boundaries of Israel. Now, that is not totally unique because there were other prophets like Daniel who wrote from their captivity in Babylon, but uh, it does stand out. It makes this book stand out because the majority of the scripture takes place within Israel. The most unique characteristic of the book is that there is not one mention of God in the entire book. You're not going to find his name. You're not going to find one mention of him. Now, that does not mean that God is not included in the scriptural text. That does not mean that he is not present, but uh, because he certainly is. But this book, it's, it's very unique in that sense that God is not explicitly mentioned within the scriptures, uh, the this text of Esther. The book of Esther is the story of a love affair. There are a lot of other things that are in there too, but from the beginning of this book until the end of it, we see this in- interplay between a husband who just so happens to be the king of Media Persia and his wife, the queen, perhaps I should say his wives, because there are two. So the book opens with a party. We're just going to start right there in Esther chapter 1. 
It says, it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. And in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles, the princes of the provinces being before him. Now, you have to understand that there are types and there are shadows in the Old Testament which reveal unto us greater truths. And this is one of them. Ahasuerus was a real king. This is a real story. This really happened. But in this story, the king, Ahasuerus, is in many ways a depiction. He is a type and a shadow of God himself. And you will see that the king has for himself a queen. To skip down to verse 9, that same chapter says, Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded his seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials For she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, and she brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. So the king gets his advisors around him, and he asks what he ought to do with this rebellious queen. They advise him to make an example out of her. Says They say, throw her out of the palace, replace her with a new beautiful queen. So that's exactly what he does. Now, I'm trying to get to my point here quickly with with Esther without spending too much time in this book, but I'm going to lay some foundation here today, and I'm not going to cover everything in Esther, but this book, it it gets its name from this new beautiful queen that King Ahasuerus would marry. And though no one in the palace knows it, Esther was this young, orphaned Jewish girl. So there comes a day when the king's right-hand man becomes full of hatred towards the Jewish people. He gets the king to agree to sign a decree that uh, on such and such date, all of the Jews that are within his kingdom would be exterminated, be killed, be wiped out. But it was for such a time as this that Esther had become queen. And so she gathers together as much gumption as she can, and she musters up. Uh, for herself, this, this ability to go in and to uh, get an audience with the king and with his right-hand man, the wicked Haman. Now, she might have been the queen, but it was still very risky for her if you uh, get an understanding of the, the what took place there in that palace and what took place there for the king, that just to walk into the king's court was not something that anybody could do without being summoned in. And but But Esther... She needed to go and have an audience with the king. And so she decides that I need to just make this step. And she says, uh, actually, let's just go there in Esther chapter 5, verse 1. It says, it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes. She stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house. And while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of his of the house, uh, about, I guess I, I skipped over the time when she, when she walked into the throne room. She walked in and what she did was she, she asked 
Uh, no, I, again, about, I should have just kept on reading. Verse 2. <laughs> so it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. Here, I thought they were already at the banquet. There she found favor in his sight. And the king, he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther went near and he touched the top of that scepter. The king said to her, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? And it shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. The queen simply asks for him to join him for a tea party. Which he does. And then again at the tea, bar, tea party, King Ahasuerus tells his wife, what is it that you want? I'll give you anything up to half the kingdom. He was saying, whatever I have is yours. You're my queen. You may have been a little orphan girl before I married you, but on our wedding day, you put on one of those royal robes, and from that day forward, you were able to live in my royal palace. You took on my royal name, and anything that is mine is now yours. And these are the benefits of being married to the king. But don't forget that there are requirements as well. Queen Esther, you became the queen because someone else forgot that there is an expectation on the queen. Vashti forgot that she forgot this when the king asked of her for something. It wasn't up to her to just ignore him. You can't just ignore the king's request, but she did that and she suffered because of it. And Peter, we're going to come out of the book of Esther here, and Peter, he writes to us in his first epistle in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He says, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. He says, it is written. He's taking this phrase, this uh, be ye holy, for I am holy. He's taking that from the book of Leviticus. And we're not going to get there quite yet, but, uh, uh, but we are going to get there hopefully today. This book in the Bible that's uh, Leviticus that teaches more on holiness than any other book in the Bible. Right now, I just want to focus on that one sentence though. Be ye holy, for I am holy. I believe that in order to truly understand the be ye portion of this, you first have to get an understanding of the for I am. God saying, for I am holy. That wasn't Peter that is just writing those words about himself. This is God speaking. God said, I am holy, so be ye holy. Now, the Hebrew term for the word holy is this word kadesh, and it's often explained as being separated or being set aside. And this is certainly the core of the Jewish understanding of this word. It's often used to indicate separation or withdrawal from ordinary usage. And we've been talking about consecration which is that initial step of separation or withdrawal from the things that are profane. But in Leviticus, God commanded Israel more than once to be holy, even as I, the Lord God, Lord your God, am holy. Be holy, for I, the Lord God, 
am holy. It's in Leviticus 11.44 and Leviticus 19.2, Leviticus 20.26. We see that particular statement made. Most Jewish rabbis interpret this order to mean, as I am separated, so be ye separated. God says, as I am different, as I am separated, I'm asking of you and expecting you to also be separated. But as I said, we need to understand the, for I am holy part of this before we can really grasp the be ye holy. So what is the nature? What's the nature of the holy one's separation? That Levitical command, be ye holy, even as I, the Lord your God, am holy, occurs in two very different contexts within the book of Leviticus. One occurrence concerns Israel's diet. We see that in Leviticus eleven forty four and Leviticus twenty twenty six. Those two occurrences, it's in it's in the ceremonial law, the dietary laws that they have. It's the very food that Israel would eat would make them a very distinct from all other people. But the other context reveals, or the other place that this is mentioned is a very different context. It's in Leviticus chapters eighteen through twenty that it discusses. Sexual and social vices that are apparent among other nations. But God says, these have no place among my people. I want you to imitate my holiness, my separation. And here we learn that God's holiness has to do with inherent morality. Leviticus 19.24, if you just want to jot that down, that scripture, it talks about the morality of God and the morality that he expects of his people. In Israel, it's admonished to be separated from the nations of the world and their abominations, in particular in regard to sexual immorality, which I would say even today is certainly an area that we, as God's people, must be cognizant of a clear separation from what the world would say is okay and what the church would say, the church of the bride of Christ, how we would view sexuality. Now, holiness, it signifies an utter withdrawal from what is morally evil. As one separates from impurity and immorality, one is emulating God himself. He, by his nature, is distinguished from all other entities. God himself uh, is separated from, from anything that is, there is nothing like God. And we can dive really deep into uh, all of the ways that God is separated, all the ways that God is holy. Uh, but perhaps I could just allow Josephus, who was this famed Jewish historian, to sum it up. He wrote, God is perfect and blessed. He is self-sufficing and sufficing for all. He's the beginning, the middle, and the end of all things. In his works and bounties, he is plainly seen. Indeed, more manifest than aught else, but his form and his magnitude surpass our powers of description. No materials, however costly, are fit to make an image of him. No art has skill to conceive and represent it. The like of him we have never seen, we do not imagine, and it is impious to conjecture. He's unlike anything else. As it says in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? First Samuel 2, 2 says, There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. 
John writes in Revelation chapter 15 verse 4. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. What he's saying is there is nothing that is holy like you are holy. There is nothing that is so distinct from everything else like you are distinct. And so be ye holy for I am holy. God is separated from everything else that can be imagined. And in his holiness, he exists far from us in this holy heaven where his throne sits, where earth is his footstool. And yet, paradoxically, the Hebrew word for holy, which is that word Kadesh, it takes in both that transcendence or that separation and how God is so separate from us. But in the same sense, from the Jewish understanding of holiness, it would say that God also is near to us. That in the same sense of him being separated from us, he is just as near to us and to his people. The prophet Isaiah is aware of this. On the one hand, he says, this is in Isaiah 57, 15. He says, for thus says the Lord, for thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I will dwell in the high and holy place. That's where God is. But on the other hand, the same prophet says in Isaiah 12, 6, Cry out and shout, O inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. He is in high in heaven. He is in the high and lofty places where we cannot reach, where we cannot go. But yet he is also right here in your midst. So the Holy One is both transcendent as He's that, that transcendent other that's so different. He's separated from his creation, but also he is near to us. He is not far. Some Jewish rabbis, they explain this by saying that the Holy One, blessed be he, be he, appears to be afar off. But in reality, there is nothing closer than he. However high he be above his world, let a man but enter a synagogue. Stand behind a pillar and pray in a whisper. And the Holy One, blessed be He, hearkens to His prayer. Can there be a God nearer than this, who is close to His creatures as the mouth is to the ear? That is written in the Tanakh, uh, these Jewish uh, understandings of, of God and who, who God is. And, and God, his, his holiness, it both separates Him from all creation, but it also draws Him to His creation. Because His Holiness is goodness. In his holiness is goodness. And God chose for himself a bride. In the book of Genesis, he chose one man, one family to be his elect people. Abraham, and then Abraham's son Isaac, Isaac's son Jacob, who would then become Israel. God chose them. And in doing so, he called for them to be ye holy, for I am holy. The same command that is then transcribed or then quoted for us to live out in the New Testament. Be holy, for I am holy. See, I I laid this out in this way this morning because we have to understand that God 
is holy and he will always be holy. There is none like him. But he chose for himself a bride. And when he did so, he said to them, whatever you want, it could be yours up to half the kingdom. You are now mine. You belong to me. You have access to things that you never had access to before. The royal robes, you have access to them. The royal palace, here's the key. My servants, the angels, they are here as guardians and as messengers. When you became my bride, you took on my name. When you became my bride, you were allowed access to my nearness, unlike anyone else on earth. And just as I am holy and separated in the heavens, I am also holy and nearer to you than ever before. And just as you took on my name, you also will take on my holiness. So be holy, for I am holy. My holiness is extending outward to you, my bride. I am holy. And so now you are able to be holy. When I got this revelation of, of it is his holiness, and now he, as a holy God, takes to himself a bride. And then that bride who comes close to him is able to have access to the very nature of who God is. He is a holy God. And we come close to him. And he says, I'm holy. So now, be holy. I'm a holy God. I'm so different. I'm so separate. I'm, I'm, not, I'm unlike anything in this world. And now I brought you close to me so that you can also experience this. I want to go to Deuteronomy because perhaps, this perhaps states it best right here. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verse 1, beginning there, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, Hivites, the Jebusites, all these seven nations that are greater and mightier, mightier than you. When the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. Don't make a covenant with them. Don't show mercy to them. Your, uh, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter or your son to them. Don't, don't take your, their their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, burn their carved images with fire. Verse six, for you are a holy people to the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord, he did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all people. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and he has redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He shall be holy. Why? Because I'm holy. For I've attached you unto me. As it said in Jeremiah 13, 11, it says, for as the sash clings to the waist of a man, so I have caused 
the whole house of Israel, the whole house of Judah to cling to me. It's like that belt that you put around your pants to keep them up. He says, I've done that with Israel. I've attached them to me. I've, I've, I've brought them close to me, says the Lord, for the, that they may become my people for renown, for praise, for glory. They would not hear me. Just as a king chooses for himself a queen, and he says to her, since you are my wife, what is my glory is your glory. And God says, be therefore holy, even as I am holy. And yet the passage that we just read in Jeremiah, it ends with these five words, but they would not hear. Israel wanted to be like everyone else around them. They didn't want to be separated. God wanted them to cling to him just like that waistband on your pants. He said, I want you to be close to me just so I can transfer my renown to you. And I can show you off for my praises and for my glory. I'm holy and I'm extending my holiness to you. I'm showing you that there is a path that is unlike any path that the world has ever taken. Some of the things are not going to make sense to you. But I'm asking you to do them because they will separate you from the other nations. There are some moral things that I'm going to ask you to uphold which are going to separate you from everyone else. It's all an extension of my holiness. He says, you can't do this except you do it through me. That's why I chose you. Because you're my bride. Because now what is mine can be yours. But you still have a choice to be or not be. To take advantage of it or not to take advantage of it. Vashti chose to ignore the king. She said, I don't want to do what you're asking me to do. And that was her choice. But her choice got her removed from the palace altogether. God said, be holy for I am holy. The first thing that we need to understand is that the relationship comes first. God is holy, and then through relationship, we are able to participate in his holiness. Through relationship, we can participate in the fact that he is holy, and so now I have access to be able to also be separated, to be different the only way that you can be holy is by surrendering yourself completely to God. We have to understand that first and foremost. John, he says it this way in his first epistle. He says, now little children abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And then again in the fourth chapter, he says, no one has seen God at any time. This is a reference to God's holiness, that he's not like other things that can be seen. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he abides in us because he has given us his spirit. That must be the primary focus of your pursuit of holiness. Abiding in him. Seeking to know him. Seeking to please him. That is where holiness begins. Clinging to his waistband. Clinging to him. Abiding in him. The bride of Christ coming unto him. And he says, now you can be holy 
because I'm holy. As you abide in me, I abide in you. As you come to me, then I am going to lead you down a path that's going to bring glory to my name. It's going to bring renown. It's going to bring praises. It's the, the path that I have for you is not like the, the easy path that the world would want you to take. See, don't seek after what is easy. Don't seek after the wisdom of this world. The world is going to try to tear down the walls that God wants you to build up. The wisdom of this world will say that restrictions and prohibitions are unnecessary. But God had restrictions in the Garden of Eden. He had them before the law with Abraham. There were plenty of restrictions under the law, which made his people holy. The New Testament brought even a higher degree of morality that, than, than the law did. And many restrictions and guidelines are still instructed for New Testament believers. There's even going to be walls and limits in heaven if you look towards the future. If you read the book of Revelation, it tells us that New Jerusalem is a walled city with certain dimensions, whereas hell is a bottomless pit with its mouth enlarging every day. There's no restrictions in hell. See, God, he calls the church his bride, and so he extends his holiness to us as we cling to him. But the, but the bride has certain standards that she lives by. She's married to the king of kings. She can't behave like all of the other women. She must be set apart. And so be holy. It, it extends from God to us, but it also is a stark reminder for us as the queen, as the bride of Christ, that there are certain standards that we must live by. There are responsibilities that we must live by according to his holy ways that are, that are set there for us as, as the, the guardrails or the, the, the markers of holiness. And so I want to go, I want to go with what time we have left here this morning to the book of Leviticus. Because it helps us to understand, it helps us to understand this concept in a, in a deeper way. Now, we also ought to understand that the book of Leviticus, it was written to the Levites. And that is why it's called Leviticus. The Levites were the priests of the, of the people of Israel. These are the ones who were called aside, or set aside for worship or set aside for all of the, the duties in the tabernacle. They were the ones that were the, the priestly people. And yet, uh, these, these things, we today are kings and priests in God's kingdom today. That we today live out as the kings and priests in the New Testament church. Now, it's not, the instruction here in the book of Leviticus uh, is concerning the law. Read through the book of Leviticus. It's, it's this instruction concerning the law. Uh, sacrifices, these holy convocations, festivals, Sabbaths, offerings, these peace offerings and meat offerings, trespass offerings, all these. It's, the, it's this book that's about the laws, the purification, these laws of leprosy, these, uh, the regulation of the atonement, the laws of holiness and justice. It's what is covered in the book of Levit Leviticus. But what it really makes this book kind of difficult, if you're reading through this book, or if you're preaching from the book of Leviticus, it makes it difficult because there is no storyline in the book. And there's no speaking characters in the book. There's maybe just one little piece 
that you could kind of preach from when uh, the sons of Aaron, they go in and they bring strange fire into there uh, and, and they're, they're dropped dead because of that. There's maybe that, that one little story uh, that, that has a little bit of a storyline, but that's just a very small blip within this book. And the rest of it is simply God speaking. There's no real sensational thing in the book. It's just this tough book. If you're trying to, to even read through it, sometimes uh, it feels like it's, it's a little dry because there's no storyline. But there is no book in the Bible that contains more direct words of God than this book. This is God's book. His voice is all that you ever hear in the book of Leviticus. He's almost throughout the entire book the direct speaker. If, uh, if like in the New Testament, when Jesus is speaking, uh, we read it and, and or see it in print and read, uh, if that was the same in the Old Testament, then in God's words were written in red, then this would be a red letter book. And the entire book nearly would be red ink because God is the direct speaker in the entire book of Leviticus. There's no personal opinions that we have here. There are, there's no thought, no man's thoughts that are going into this book. No, no fleshly ideas. There's, there's no real dialogue between God and man. This is simply God speaking, God talking here. So if you think the words of Jesus in red are important, then these right here are the words of God. They're not in red, but if they were, then, then this whole book it would nearly be all in red. See, the words, it is written, are written 64 times in the New Testament. Now, the New Testament was not written yet when they were writing, or when they were writing their books, of course. Makes sense, I hope, that the New Testament wasn't written yet. So they, when they were said, it is written, they were not referring to their New Testament writings, but they were referring back to the Old Testament. They were using the Old Testament scriptures to validate what they were saying and to make it concrete truth of what they were saying. And so they would say something, and they would uh, then they would validate that by saying, for it is written, they're going back to the Old Testament because it had already been written. So 64 times we see this. And at least 13 of those times are direct quotes from the book of Leviticus. That these direct quotes that come from the book of Leviticus come to validate things that the New Testament writers would write for us to live out. And so if they can validate things with the text of the Old Testament, of Leviticus in particular, then we ought to also be able to validate things from the Old Testament. And I, and I, I lay this foundation here because sometimes we say, all I want, you know, I don't care about the Old Testament. I just want the New Testament. The law, because the law has passed away, Jesus fulfilled all of it. But that's not true. Jesus didn't fulfill all of the law. He fulfilled the ceremonial law. The moral law is still in force today. So when you look at the Old Testament, the New Testament writers, they use that Old Testament to validate and to enforce what they were just saying. So I think if the New Testament writers could do that, then today we ought to as well to be able to validate the things that are moral from the Old Testament, from Leviticus, God speaking about holiness, and be able to come today and to say these things are still enforceable today for us as God's people. So Leviticus chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. He says, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am the Lord your God and you shall keep my statutes, perform them. For I am the Lord who sanctifies you. 
we continue reading in that book, we're not going to read all of this, but in verses 9 through 21, God, he goes on to list a bunch of sexual prohibitions, things that would make his people distinct from the nations around them. He says, don't commit adultery. Don't lie with your daughter-in-law. Don't marry both a woman and her mother. Stay away from your aunt, your uncle, your sister-in-law, your brother-in-law. All of these are moral laws that God was laying out for his people to understand that they needed to be holy. They needed to be separated. I would hope that today, none of that would uh, be a shock for us or to say, well, I, you know, I, th- I think we ought to just throw all of that, all that out. None of that matters. <laughs> I think those are all still good things for us today. But in, if we pick it back up in verse 22, it says, you shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments, perform them, that the land where I am bringing you to dwell may not vomit you out. You shall not walk in the statutes of the nation which I am casting you, casting out before you. For they commit all of these things, and therefore I abhor them. But I have said to you that you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land that's flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore distinguish between clean animals and unclean, between unclean birds and clean. You shall not make yourselves abominable by beast or by bird, by any kind of living thing that creeps on the ground, which I have separated from you is unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have separated you from, my pe- from the peoples that you should be mine. So we read all of this, and some things that we understand that it still applies to us. All that sexual stuff, it still applies to us. Honor your father, your mother, that still applies us, the ones from even chapter 19 before this, love your neighbor as yourself. It certainly applies to us today. That marker of holiness that came to us from Leviticus is repeated many times in the New Testament. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, he didn't do away with these moral laws. He only did away with the ceremonial laws and the sacrifice, the sacrifices, the dietary laws, those things. But even from those, we can still learn something about God's holiness and his holy expectations for his bride. For he says, I will determine what is clean and what is unclean. That's not for you to determine. That's for me to determine. And then it's on you to distinguish between them. It's on you to stay away from the unclean things. It's on you to live it out. See, God is still the one today who determines the boundaries of our holiness. We are still the ones who have the choice to live it out or not to live it out. We need to distinguish between what is holy and what is unholy, what's right and what's wrong. Isaiah said, woe unto them who call evil good and good evil. Don't get the two things mixed up. I know our time is coming to a close right here. But I want to make sure that we, I want want to go back into 1 Peter chapter 1. This scripture that I keep quoting in 1 Peter 1 verse 16. But back up just a few verses because it says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Maybe we'll start back here next week. But Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, who also be holy in all of your conduct because it's written, be holy. For I am holy. Peter, he reminds us to gird up the loins of our minds. He says, don't let your mind be free-flowing. Gird it up. Get it, get it girded up. You know, because the, 
the loins of your mind. Your, your loins are a place where things are birthed. It, it, you know, first of all, it takes place in our brain, in your mind, before it ever comes out as an action. Before you ever go rob a bank, first of all, you get it in your mind. You get this idea to rob a bank in your mind. But if you can kill it in your mind, then you may not do it. <laughs> so first of all, you have to have holiness in you, in your mind, the things in your thoughts. And I've thought about doing some things to people before, but thank God holiness kept me from going to prison. Or from saying things that I shouldn't have said. You know, people will try you sometimes. But you have to gird up the loins of your mind. Don't allow your mind just to flow freely. So your loins, this place of creation, it's a place of reproduction. Things are born from your loins, things that, that come out of your mind. We need to be careful about the things that we ruminate about, things that we allow just to be processed in our minds. And I have a whole lot more to say about that. We'll have to save it for next week. God has called us today to be holy. And it's not a, it's not something that we should be pained over. It's something that we should be celebrating today. We are a holy people. We are a holy people today. First Peter chapter 2. He says, you're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In times past, you were not a people, but now you are a people and you're the people of God. You had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. He has called you his bride. He's brought you unto him. He said, come close to me. Come close to me. I'm a holy God, but I want you near near me. And in my holiness, I'm holy. And so now as you come draw close to me and you abide in me, my holiness is going to send out words towards you. And now you're able to be holy, for I am holy. We just stand all over this place today. Just lift up a hand. God Almighty. I love you, Jesus. I worship and adore you. Just want to tell you, Lord, I love you more than anything. I love you, Jesus. I worship and adore you. Just want to tell you, Lord, I love you more.